You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So, Jeremy, first of all, I have to really apologize. I am so bad sometimes at returning emails and so on. Your your book was excellent. Uh, you know, unremarkable to extraordinary. I really enjoyed reading it and I meant to do a, a recommendation and I just never got to it. So I really apologize. It's no worries, man. Life, life happens. I get to, like, I get it. You're, you're doing so much, man. Like I, I, I just appreciate you have time to, to, to get back to me. That's all. <laughs> no, I just, I, it was really bad because I told you I would do it. And then I just, I got overwhelmed by a bunch of things and I really wanted to do a good job, which sometimes, again, I think we all like to think we're not perfectionists, but I think particularly with writing, this is, I have a big problem like returning emails, uh, uh, writing forwards or intros 
or recommendations because I feel like it's got to be everything I write has to be like great and it's it's too much. Do you respond to emails the same way I do? Like I get a really long one, I look at it, I just go, oh dear God, and I close it. <laughs> yeah, like the nicer the email is to me, the less likely I am to respond. <laughs> like I get a long email and I'm like, oh dear God, this could have been three bullet points, please. Yeah, I almost never respond to emails, which is really bad. I have a, a huge list of people. I really want to return their emails and I keep telling myself, okay, this weekend I'm going to do it. And then I don't do it. And then it's Monday and everything's horrible again. Well, Wait, what day is it today? It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. I wake up every day and I have like three to 500 new ones. And I, I you know, I can't, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. So I can't even imagine what your inbox looks like. Well, who, what, like, so you're getting emails for, for your podcast or what do you, what do you get emails for? I, part of it is like, I end up in all these lists that I don't know how I got on. So like we go through this process of like unsubscribing to stuff every day is, is kind of one thing. So I have a, a process. My VA helps me with on that. Um, the other thing is like, since we've been doing a lot more on YouTube, my inbox has just like exploded. Um, so, so it's a lot of like listener stuff and a lot of lists that I'd like, how did I get on this list? How did I get here? It, is YouTube working for you? Like, are you getting response on YouTube? I, we're, we're getting a lot of traction on YouTube, man. I had last year, we added an additional, um, you know, 1.2 million listens to the show just on YouTube alone. Um, I hadn't really done a ton oh on video. Um, we had, I did an episode with, uh, with Roger Stone about the JFK assassination and we got like 350,000 views, like in the, in the first, um, 30 That's days. That's a great idea. Roger Stone. What did Roger Stone, we're going to get to the Roman yeah, em yeah. Empire stuff, but what did Roger Stone have to say about the JFK assassination? Well, so, and I'll tell you what RFK Jr. had to say about well, it. Well, he wrote, he wrote a book about it. It's, um, and, and, um, his whole, it's called, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the book off the top of my head, but anyway, his, his idea is basically that, um, Johnson is the guy that was kind of in the best position to do it. But if you look at it, like, you know, it's kind of the CIA with the mafia, with um, different forces, and Johnson's kind of the force behind them. Because if you look at it, like, a lot of the stuff that happens doesn't make sense. Like, you know, why did Ruby get all weird? And, and why did Ruby come in and kill Oswald? And Oswald wasn't exactly a great shot. So there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. And he said that, you know, maybe um, Johnson wasn't the guy like actually killing him, but he was kind of the one best set up to to kind of benefit from all these different forces. Well, the Lee Harvey Oswald one, I feel you could kind of work around. Okay, he wasn't a good shot, but there were several shots and they, they kind of got, were scattershot. They hit John Connolly, they hit JFK, but but the, the Jack Ruby thing's weird. So probably everybody knows the story, but a day after Lee Harvey Oswald was caught for assassinating Kennedy, this random guy who was like, I don't know, he owned like some nightclub, like a porn club or a strip club or whatever. He, and he has some affiliation with the mafia, we think, or organized crime in Dallas. He comes out and just shoots Oswald. A national like TV, dude. Yeah. So like that one, how did how does the Warren Commission explain that? Like that one, I just don't understand. I, I'm I don't think necessarily it was some kind of weird conspiracy, but why did Jack Ruby basically give up his life because he spent the rest of his life in jail then, and he never said anything? Why did he do that? What's the official reason? It's it's once again like the the thing that um, the thing that that Stone talks about is basically Ruby like owed money to the mafia. And the mafia was one of the, the main forces that involved in this because um, the mafia had helped to get Kennedy elected and he had promised a lot of different things. But then when he's actually president, his brother Bobby ends up going against the mafia. So then he up upsets the mafia. So that ends up being why Ruby has to do that. Um, 
to me, um, it, it is kind of strange because once again, it happens on national TV and you're, you're wondering like, what, how, why, why are they covering this and why are they showing it to everybody? Because to me, I think when you show something to people, there, there's an effect you're trying to create. But when you look at it, Johnson was totally unelectable because he was this crazy guy. He was, he used to, he used to actually, people he didn't like, reporters, he would make them interview him while he was in the bathroom, going to the bathroom. Like he was a really crazy, unelectable guy. And he was the one that could best benefit from all these forces. Um, and, you know, you get the, the the war in Vietnam not long after that, which, built, which benefits the military-industrial complex. So not that I think it's a grand conspiracy, but I think it, it all comes back down to money, man. And I think when, when you're, you're looking at the people that have the most economic benefit, I think that's what you, you got to look at. But also, here's the thing about all conspiracies, is that a lot of people have to keep a secret. So, like... Jack Ruby's descendants or anybody who was in the, like, let's say you kept it as small as possible. Let's say only like Sam Giancana, who was kind of the head of the mafia then, and his closest allies were in on the whole thing. Because someone had to reach out to Jack Ruby and convince him to do this, or Lee Harvey Oswald or whatever. And how did all the people involved keep it a secret for 60 years? That is a really good question. I don't, I don't have the answer to that. And that's, that's, that's a really good point. But also at the same time, I'd love to see what's in the rest of those files that they, they keep, you know, locking up for years. Like, like what is it? Yeah. Those? Why do they say they don't release those files? When, um, Stone said he'd actually talked to Trump about it since the two of them are pretty close. And Trump had told him if you only knew what's in them, you'd understand why part of them are still hidden. Oh my God. <laughs> right. It's that, a great story, man. <laughs> Just that alone is enough to make me crazy to want to get them. Eventually, they'll be released, right? Like, what's the date they're supposed to be released? So it was supposed to be, um, like, in the last few years, but then they locked them up again. I, I don't know what the what the future release date is. They keep kind of pushing it back. And um, Biden had actually released a large percentage of them, but there's still a, a big, you know, there's still a, a good percentage they're holding up. So RFK Jr., when he was on my podcast, he basically said the FBI killed his 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 uncle and his dad. It makes sense. Yeah, because they because RFK really hated uh, J. Edgar Hoover, also. Well, and if you understand the the relationship with with Hoover and, and Bobby Kennedy, um, um, Hoover after after his I'm, I'm trying to remember, there, one of them had a button on their desk that would actually make the other guy show up, and after the uh, certainly our RFK was technically Hoover's boss when he was the attorney general. So probably RFK had that button. Yeah. So after, but after that period of time, the two men never had a conversation again after the actual assassination, because, because Hoover was just basically like, you know, we, we got our way. So if you look at logistically what happens, it, it makes a ton of sense. Gosh, man. All right. Well, and you know, I do think, you know, one thing about conspiracy theories is that one common factor that all conspiracy theorists have in common is that they believe in other conspiracy theories. And so you can see with RFK, like him or not, he basically every conspiracy theory out there from JFK assassination to 9-11 to all sorts of stuff with COVID. I'm not saying he's right or wrong. Sure. It's just that he's he has signed up for all the conspiracy theories. He kind of fits the psychological model of someone who believes every conspiracy theories. Now, just because something's a conspiracy theory doesn't mean it's wrong. But I think there's probably half truths to whole truths for for most of these, except for maybe nine eleven. But uh, uh, it is interesting that RFK Jr. basically believes in every conspiracy theory. Well, I think the 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 thing is too is it's at a certain point like the. 
the media narrative's gotten so weird that you start questioning things because you're looking at it like, well, that doesn't add up and that doesn't add up and that doesn't add up. Now, that doesn't mean you need to go down every rabbit hole because, dude, I've got some friends that think there's a boogeyman under every bed. And I'm like, no, no, that, that's a little too much for me. But I think you, you do need to question a lot more, right? Like one of my favorite courses I took in college was logic. And I think often we, we take things at face value. We're like, yes, that makes a ton of sense to me. But I think you have to look at, you have to look at things and question them and say, does this make sense? Now, that doesn't mean you need to believe every conspiracy theory, but I think questioning, there's nothing wrong with that. I agree. So we're going to talk about the fall of the Roman Republic. And you reached out. I, I'm just curious. You reached out because I think on, on the podcast, we were, I was talking a little bit about how uh, it's become this meme that men think about the Roman Empire a lot. I don't think about the Roman Empire at all, basically. Like I, I, other than the, when I watched the TV series, series Rome on HBO, which was one of the best TV shows I've ever seen, yes. uh, I hardly ever think about the Roman Empire. But is it the case that most men spend a good part of the day thinking about the Roman Empire? I don't, I don't know if most men do. I know, I, like for me, I've always been interested in that stuff. And it's always kind of felt like, for me, it's, it's always just kind of pulled me. Um, for me, it started with interest in Alexander the Great, first and foremost. And just a very, very interesting character. He's more of a philosopher king until he decides he's God, goes a little bit crazy and starts killing all the people around him. And- uh, Oh, I didn't know that about him. So so Alexander the Great was around 300 BC or 400 BC. It was, he, Aristotle was his teacher. So I'm just trying to think when Aristotle was around. So in 300 BC. So he dies in 323 um, and he's 33 years old. So if you backtrack it somewhere around there is when, when he's born. And uh, when and the interesting thing about his life is he he does have- um, the Aristotle is a teacher. So he's kind of this philosopher king and he has this idea of uniting the whole world. And there's this legend that he slept with the copy of the Iliad under his pillow because he wanted to be, um, he wanted to be like a Greek hero. And once his father, Philip II, dies, he takes control of the army after the, the Battle of Chironia, which is in 3, 338. And he goes and then conquers the East and he conquers Babylon and he conquers all these things. And he, he was basically going to conquer Europe and Africa and Asia, and he was going to unite the world. But things get a little bit weird for him because he has this, this whole idea of, you know, wanting to be Hercules. So he starts positioning himself as that, doing things Hercules would have done to, to, to kind of look like that. And then there's these two things that really happen to him in his life. The first is when he conquers Babylon, the Babylonians were already doing ruler worship and they had this process called proskinesis. And what that actually means is like you lay on the ground in front of your ruler, like we are not worthy. I can't even look at you. You lay your full body on the ground. So once he conquers Babylon, he conquers Darius the third and he starts making people do this. And the people, the, the people around him are like, well, this is kind of weird. I grew up with you. You know, we, we wrestled together. Like, why am I laying in the ground in worship of you? But he started making people do it. And then he conquers Egypt. And in Egypt, one of the places that he goes to is this oracle at Zeus Amon. It, Amon is a city in Egypt. And when you conquer Egypt, you become its pharaoh. So the way the pharaoh was always greeted was son of God, right? Because they had seen him as, as a royalty. So he enters the oracle and they say, greetings, son of God. And he's like, son of God, I like the sound of that. So then he's already has people worshiping him. Now he thinks he's the son of God. And there's this, <clears throat> after that worship, there's this one situation where he's having dinner with all his friends and his most trusted soldier is this guy, his name's Clytus the Black. And he was his father, Philip II's like right-hand man. And basically they've had a little bit too much to drink. And Clytus says, no, you're, you're not the son of God. I know your father. I worked with your father. I was his right-hand man. So then Alexander basically kills him in front of everybody. 
And that was like the oh breaking moment of like, he's crazy. He thinks he's God. And that was when the Philosopher King thing ends. And they, he goes on this kind of never ending thing of like, the thing that actually kills him is the fact that he won't stop. He's trying to conquer. He's trying to go through India. He keeps going through India into, into Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is actually what, what ends up killing him. He marries a, uh, Afghanistan was known as Bactria in that time period. And he, he marries a Bactrian woman named Roxana. And, uh, that kind of ends up being like the end of him. He gets sick and then all his men fight over him that there's thoughts that maybe he was poisoned. And then the next kind of few hundred years before Rome is, is what kind of leads up to that time period. A couple of questions about Alexander the Great before we get to Rome. He was in charge at first of the, of the Greek empire. Is this Macedonians? Is this the Greek- so the Macedonians weren't, weren't exactly Greek. They were kind of like, um, um, not exactly barbarians, but not like, you know, not like, you know, we're ancient Greeks. We're very proper. So they were kind of like uh, like Greek light. And um, they had actually- where, where was the Greek empire at this time? Like what was, what was going on? It, was it already gone? It was already fading at that point in time because this is after Athens had already fallen. This is after, you know, Sparta doesn't really matter as much because Alexander the, fa- the father, Philip II, um, was actually the Macedonian that goes and conquers all of Greece. So that's how- hmm the Macedonians actually gain control of Greece is actually Alexander's father. He goes through and conquers everything. He conquers Thebes. Um, he conquers Athens. He conquers these different areas. And um, Alexander basically inherits that when his father dies. And it's not really sure like how his father died, but he was stabbed. And it's there's thoughts that Alexander the Great's mother, um, Olympias, may or may not have had him killed. We don't, we don't know. But then Alexander basically inherits that. So that that's how his father had done all this conquering and taken over the territory. And why didn't Alexander turn to the West in, instead of going to the East? Why didn't he go after the, the then existing Roman Republic? Did, Rome, did the Roman Republic not have as much like wealth or resources? During that time period, it was the Persians that were really big because the Persians had, mm. had were, and the, he, him conquering Persia basically ends their empire because what happens is they, the East is seen as this, this picture of wealth, this picture of money, because there, there's all these different resources in the East that there aren't in, there aren't in the West. Because if, if you look at Rome, uh, Rome expanded to the East, and it was actually Constantinople that ends up lasting till 1453. So there, there's always historically this idea that there's more wealth and more money and more things in the East, and that's why they keep going towards that. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Because I guess... I guess yeah. What is in what is in the West? Like, well, first of all, what were what were the resources in the East? Were there gold? Like, what what did people conquer for? What did they take with them when they left the country that they conquered back then? Well, it would be first part would be would be women. You know, they would they would also wanted to expand their society. Um, the second thing would be be wealth. There was a lot of gold and silver and things like that in the East. And then also there was a lot of fabrics and things that you couldn't get in the West. So like you know silk and things like that. That's why it was called the Silk Road of what came from Asia. So that was, it was really a resource battle and, and getting those different things. And, and then when, when, let's say he conquers Persia, he goes back to Macedonia, does Persia every month, you know, year send uh, taxes or how do they, how do they keep control over what's happening? I assume they install a governor. How does they, they keep part of their army there to, to maintain law and order? Like how do they control the areas they conquer? So he never actually went back to Macedonia. Like he leaves in this campaign and he just, goes basically from 338 to 323 where he dies. And what mm-hmm. happened is the the Persian Empire was really interesting to control because um, they had these governors. They were called satraps. And satraps were like their type of governors. And they would govern a, a par- parcel of land called a satrapy. And 
when he became the the guy conquering the the king of Babylon, which who was the the king of Persia at that point in time, Darius the third, he basically just took his job. So now all the all the governors then answered to Alexander because he was the guy with the power. So there wasn't a lot he had to do in order to do that. But then as he kept going through land, if there were kind of um, things that were coming up against him, he conquered those people and put some military men there. But that was that was the number one way he did it, which is by taking the government that was already there and saying, okay, so I'm the guy in charge now. You like power, you like money, great, I'm your guy. So would the citizens like him? Like, did he did he rape and pillage or did he basically try to get everybody to like him? Because I, I feel like there's two different strategies that, that were used back then. Well, initially people really liked him because he was somebody that, you know, he kind of came at, you know, once again, like a philosopher king. He allowed them to practice their religion the, the way they've been practicing it. He allowed them to operate the way they've been operating. And um, that was the number one reason they liked him. Now, his his generals that took over after him, they're called the, the, the Diadochoi, or the successors of Alexander, um, they, they weren't so nice. They created their own kingdoms out of each one of these different areas. So he was actually very permissive of a lot of people, so he was liked. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So 
you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, so this was sort of like a side journey because I really want to talk about the Roman Empire, but I was just curious, like the the Roman and Greek Empire always seem in my head to to be kind of parallel in some way. Like with the Greeks like a little bit earlier. And well, it's interesting because the Greeks like like they have power first, then you have all this period of Rome in the bit in the middle, and then because they end up in Byzantium in the end, the Greeks kind of win in the end. Oh, that's interesting. All right. Well, so the 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 Roman Republic. There was a Roman kingdom, then a republic, yes. and then with, starting with Julius Caesar, the, the Ro- Caesar, the, the Roman Empire. So the Roman Republic started around seven fi- like seven fifty three BC is when that starts. And there's traditionally seven kings of Rome. The first one being Romulus, and um, the the final king. Did, did he really exist, Romulus? Suppo- or was that myth? Supposedly, you know, it's it's okay. it's a long time ago. There's no way to prove it. I think starting around like five hundred BC and earlier, it's hard to verify actual individuals. Yes, I agree. Unless there's money with, with with their name on it, was there money with with found with with na- Romulus's name on it, like a coin? Not as far as I know. You know, once again, I I haven't read everything out there, so as, as far as I know, there aren't any, isn't any coinage with Romulus's name on it, unless it was made by a later emperor. Okay, because there so, were later emperors that would that would put a coin with Romulus's face on one side and theirs on the other, and be like, "Hey, I'm like that guy." I see. Yeah, it's, it's uh, social proof or authority. Yes. Like one of those copywriting techniques. It's a, it's a blue check mark, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like they were using these techniques all the way back then. So, okay, so the Roman kingdom started. What was it before it was a kingdom? Was it anything? It was just kind of a, a, like a wasteland. There was just not really much there. And Rome is kind of this this city. And um, Romulus in that time period ends up, you know, there's this whole like legend of where, where Romulus and his brother Remus raised by a she-wolf. We don't know. Um, then, uh, Romulus gets jealous and he kills his brother Remus and he founds the city Rome. And then Rome has this issue in the beginning that they, he builds the city from basically a bunch of criminal men that he finds. So it's him and a bunch of criminal men. They don't really have any women. So they start this, this small city and they're like, well, we need women in order to grow. So then there's this, uh, what's called the, the rape of the Sabine women. Basically they invite this other people, the Sabines to come to dinner. 
And during the dinner, the men kidnap all the women. And that ends up being how, how Rome gets its first women. And that's how, that's how the city of Rome is founded. So then it goes for seven kings. Who were who these Sabines? Like it was like a big family or it was like another city? It was, a, it was like a city or a culture near Rome because Rome didn't really have an established culture at that point in time. There was these small kind of like city-states in that area. And given what happens back then, why would they agree to go to dinner with Romulus and, and Remus and whoever? And a because bunch that's of how history is written, man. We don't know if it actually even happened. <laughs> I see, I see. So then there were a bunch of kings. The kings were pretty, you know totalitarian or authoritarian and then finally uh a bunch of citizens or or i don't know who somebody overthrows them in 509 bc and it becomes yeah, it's, the roman it's republic one, it's one guy and this is actually important in in uh in roman legend is um they're killed by a guy named brutus and brutus kills the final king brutus but that's why it's important because like because they they attach that to the assassin of of Caesar, and they say, okay, well, it's the Brutus is basically the the protection of protecting us from having a monarch, right? Mm. So that's so this guy named Brutus assassinates the final Roman king. There's seven of them. I don't remember them in order. I just remember the first one is is Romulus. There, they have all these very strange names. Um, but the the final king, I think it was Tarquin Superbus or Tarquin the Proud. I don't remember. You can't quote me on that one. But um, I was going to quote you at a <laughs> party, but now I won't. Well, you can, you can make a one of those quote cards like Abraham Lincoln, you know, everything you say on the internet is not true. Um, yeah. But so that the final one ends and then in 509, you have kind of the Roman Republic that starts and the Republic that, as I had mentioned, the Greeks and the Romans kind of fight about who had democracy first. So the, the Greeks say we had it in 508, the Romans say we had it in 509. And then you have the Republic that basically goes from, from 509 until, till 31, which is when Augustus basically creates the empire. So almost 500 years that's pretty remarkable considering, yes. you know, I'm sure at that time, I mean, there was a lot of things in the, in the Roman Republic. There was, um, uh, you know, checks and balances. There's, there's there are all these features of like what the United States has today. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there were elections. Were there elections? So there were elections and there were, but there were also like, it depended on like what class you could, you were in, depending on if you could vote or not. So like there was, um, like there were two two consuls every year. Consuls were kind of like the guys in charge because they didn't want to have one guy in charge. And, you know, those were named by election. But then you also had tribunes. So tribunes were the guys in in uh, charge of like protecting the city. And there was a, originally there was not what's called a tribune of the plebs. The plebs were the plebeians or the poor people. But eventually they got the ability to, to have themselves represented in government by having a tribune of the plebs. So all the poor people could vote, basically vote for um, you know, this tribune of the plebs, but you had to be what's called a knight or above. Uh, a knight was, was one of the lowest parts of the, tr the patrician class in order to actually vote for who's going to control your Roman government. But I feel like there was, I don't want to say freedom of speech because I don't really know, but there were times during the Republican, re re the, the Roman Republic that the lower classes were demanding more political power. Yes. And that's the last, like you're looking around the, uh, the, uh, second century BC. So like the, the year, you know, hundred ish, there's these two brothers, the, uh, the Gracchi brothers, Gaius Gracchus and Tiberius Gracchus. And, um, they're basically pushing for, for more things for the people, more grain, more different things. And, and their actual murder is one of the things that leads to kind of the 130 years of civil war or hundred years of civil war, which leads to the end of Rome or the end of the Republic basically. Okay. So I always thought the Republic ended because, um, basically Julius Caesar, who was very popular 
in Rome from his military efforts, he basically became a consul and then and then declared himself emperor or dictator or whatever. And that's what ended the Republic. Not necessarily. So if you look at the last, the last hundred years of Rome are kind of crazy. So you have around one, I think it's around 130 that the, the Gaius Gracchus, who's the last Gracchus, Gracchi brother is killed. Then you have in that hundred years, you have uh, Gaius Marius actually raises an army and attacks Rome and, and basically make, declares himself in charge of the city. Then after that, you have uh, Lucius Cornelius Sulla, which then does the same thing and says, hey, I'm in charge of Rome. And then you have 43 where Caesar crosses the Rubicon and then he comes in and says, hey, those guys did it, so I'm going to do it too. So now he's in charge of Rome. And then he declares himself a dictator for life. And the thing you have to understand is to do that is actually very offensive to the Romans because in, in, in Rome, there was an office called dictator. And what dictator was is if there's a period of civil strife or military strife, they had the idea that a bunch of people can't agree fast enough in order to solve a situation. So you would name a dictator that could actually do that. And a dictator would have power for six months and that's all, and they would lay their power down. And legend has it that there's this guy named Cincinnatus and Cincinnatus basically takes up the dictator, solves the problem, six months he lays it down and goes back to farming. And that's why um, George Washington is always called the American Cincinnatus basically because he laid down after the revolution, he decided he didn't want to do things anymore. And it was elections that basically made him president. But so to, to say I'm dictator for life was offensive to Romans. And that's actually what leads to Brutus and Cassius later, you know, killing Caesar. Now we're still in kind of a civil war period. And after that time period in his will, Caesar names Gaius Octavius, his adopted son. And adoption was weird in that time period because you could take somebody that's a total adult and say, I'm adopting you because it gave the person your name and title and money. And then you have one of Caesar's military guys, um, Mark Antony, that is, um, you know, like, well, if Caesar dies, then I'm the next in line. So you have this battle that comes, comes about between Gaius Octavius, who later becomes Augustus, and you have Mark Antony. And the final battle of this in 31 is the Battle of Actium. And that's where, um, in, a, in a naval battle, Augustus, who's, you know, not Augustus yet, he's Gaius Octavius, routes um, Mark Antony, who's hanging out with Cleopatra at that point in time. And they're routed and later kill, um, Mark Antony is killed. And then Augustus actually brings Cleopatra back to uh, Rome as part of his triumph. Triumphs were like these parades that would happen after military battles and where the general would, would bring in captured prisoners and all these different things. And then historically, she just kind of fades out. Um, at some point in time in that time period, she dies. Oh, did he, he didn't kill her. Like, what happened? Where does she live? Like, what happened to her? I don't. I don't really know what happens to Cleopatra. I just know she's brought into the triumph. I don't know what happens in the sources after that. Mm-hmm. I haven't really paid much attention to what happens after that point in time. Um, but then, so then Augustus comes in, and he basically says, "Okay, um, you know, I'm going to lay down this dictator position because I've solved the situation." And people were so freaked out by the hundred years of civil war that they just experienced that basically they, they demand he stay in that office. So then Augustus is actually the one to, to be the first person to control it, but he doesn't want a title of king. He doesn't want a title of emperor because those titles aren't acceptable to Romans. So he names himself uh, first citizen of Rome. 
and and that's actually you know what happens and then the senate calls him augustus so he becomes augustus first citizen of rome and then he kept the peace for a really long time like 60 70 years something like that he was the longest serving person and that was actually really important to why Rome was able to transition from a republic to an empire because basically by the time he dies, there's nobody really living that remembers what it was like to live in a republic. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I really don't know anything, but when he took power, yeah. he basically killed off all his enemies, like yes. all, all the aristocrats say who could in the Senate who could potentially oppose him, um, just like they opposed Caesar. And he took all, all their land and wealth and so on. So he was like the by far the richest person in, in Rome. And he used that to kind of give gifts and get people to like him. Yes, but he also didn't live in opulence, which was really important as well. He had a very plain diet and he dressed in like very normal clothing, whereas emperors after him were a lot more like, you know, wearing purple, which was seen to be like, you know, more of a, a, a connection to Jupiter, Jupiter Optimus Maximus or the, or the main god of Rome. And um, so he was actually a very simple guy living as first citizen. So it seemed like the Republic was still operating, but there was just kind of this first citizen in charge running a lot of things. So he had a lot of the money, he had a lot of the power. He was able to position it in such a way that he didn't look like a despot, which, which really made things function well. And, you know, it's interesting because everyone says this, it was this reign of peace, but he, he achieved that by killing all his yes. enemies. So, so he was a psychopath just like the rest of them, probably. He, he was, but he was also brilliant from the perspective, because this is actually what I wrote my, my grad thesis on is, is on um, why people worshipped Augustus, because Augustus was the one that actually figured out how to how to use propaganda to create ruler worship, and he looked at um, in in this kind of whole ending of the the Republic. There's this kind of it's not really a battle, but it's like a kind of a popularity contest between Pompey the Great, who conquers Asia, Africa, and Europe, and Julius Caesar, who conquers all of Gaul, which isn't as big as Africa, Europe, and Asia but he wrote a book about it. So the fact that he wrote a book about it makes him look really smart. And it's funny because then we talked about John F. Kennedy earlier. John F. Kennedy, quote unquote, wrote Profiles and Courage, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And it really portrayed him as this intellectual that he won a, wrote a book that, that won the Pulitzer Prize. And it was about all these American heroes who spoke up uh, in a time when you couldn't really speak up. Mm -hmm. And just like now, really. And uh, uh, it's interesting that that's used throughout history as a technique. It's it's a great technique because it's it's you know it's able to show that Caesar did this, Caesar did that, Caesar did this, and and because it's in writing, you're able to look at that. So that's that's one thing that's important. But also like there's techniques both of them use too. Pompey positions himself kind of as as the new Alexander. So he he actually goes out and he finds the breastplate of Alexander the Great and he wears it and he would um, you know do these different things to make people think he was Alexander the Great. He'd spend all these money on the people. He would, you know, build a new building for them or do this or have a parade or give them money. So people really loved Pompey because he did all these great things for him. And people actually started praising Pompey in a semi-divine way because of this. Caesar, he was much more aggressive and he would be like, well, I'm related to the god Venus, so of course I'm divine. And then he would just be very aggressive in all of his actions. So Augustus is kind of watching this whole thing and he's like, well, I can see why my step, my, my adopted father is smart, but I can also see why people love Pompey. So then in, in, after the battle of Actium, Actium's actually where the sarcophagus, because at that point in time he was mummified, the body of Alexander the Great is held. So he actually, Augustus kneels down in prayer before the body of Alexander. And then he spends the next, you know, 60 years of his life showing people how I'm just like Alexander the Great. 
And using that positioning is how he was able to actually create the cult, the uh, worship cult of Roman emperors. And during during the Republic, they were also doing military expansion um, and, and invading other places like Egypt and and so on. Uh, did did the emperors do a better job of expanding Rome, or did the Republic do a better job of expanding Rome? Well, in the Republic, it was more of a citizen army, so they kind of just took up things that looked like they were the problem. It was more of an established army under the under the empire, and that's what made conquest a lot better and a lot more efficient. Um, but they only really had conquest till about 130, which is when Emperor Hadrian builds the Wall of Hadrian, which is in Britain, and basically they said, we're not going to expand any further. And that's actually one of the things that will cause the future, and I know it's hundreds of years, but one of the things that actually causes the fall of Rome, because the more expansion, the more conquering is, the more wealth that comes in, the more you can fund everything. So once you kind of cut off that funding, you've cut off the, the flow of money. Uh, so you're saying Hadrian, because he it was a big source of revenues for them, conquering other places. Yes. And so because Hadrian basically, why did, so why did Hadrian shut the door on that? Because it just became too hard. You know, the, the barbarian tribes would just again and again and again. And if you look at kind of future emperors, you know, Marcus Aurelius, most of his uh, his his writing was actually written while he was serving in the military trying to stop the barbarian tribes. And that, that becomes one of the major things that causes the fall of the Western empires. It's just barbarian invasion, barbarian invasion, barbarian invasion. So it becomes hard. And Hadrian basically says, we're going to build a wall and we're going to hold this position. This is where we're going to stop things. Now, right or wrong, you know, it's it still lasted another, you know, we're, we're 130. It, it, it fell in, um, you know, 476. So, like, it's still a long time, right? Yeah. So, I mean, altogether, and we were talking earlier, the Roman, the Roman Republic slash Empire, the Rome, Rome as a country or whatever, a civilization, they lasted about a thousand years. Yeah. And the U.S., in contrast, right now is, is about, I don't know, so 250 years like what's somewhere in that yeah 1976 yeah. was the bicentennial so what, yeah whatever it's been since 76 although i always wonder about that 1776 is when they always say the u.s was created but george washington didn't become president until 16 or 17 years later yes like what was they never, they never really teach us in school when i was an undergrad uh, not an undergrad when i was in high school or elementary school they never really teach us what happened in these mysterious years between 1776 and 1792 a lot of failed forms of government, man. There was the Articles of Confederation. It's, it's, they were basically trying to figure out, like, how do you manage this thing? And I think we do a really bad job teaching history in schools. We do a really bad job. And I, I'm a, I, I got in a disagreement with one of my college professors about this. I, I think that when you look at history, it's, it's more important to learn it as a narrative. But I think the way we like to teach it is kind of this great man theory of history. Like, this guy did this. This guy did this. This guy did this. And it's really hard to remember it that way. But when you can kind of remember like the motions of things, it's easier to kind of put the people in place. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. 
Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What similarities? I mean, everybody's talking about, and, and this is not a new thing. I feel like every decade this happens, but everyone's mm-hmm. kind of talking that the U.S. is in decline. But the U.S. always sort of pulls success out of a hat, and I think that's because of technological innovation. I mean, we, yeah. we, of course, you could say, you could argue U.S. is going around trying to conquer countries, but U.S. doesn't really, not, it's not like the, how Roman the Roman Empire would conquer a country where they would, take all the wealth and install a governor. There's not really a lot of instances of that in the world in general. I mean, there's isolated cases. You could you could make a case for South America in a lot of ways. <laughs> Actually, that's true. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt. You know, if you've ever read Confessions of an Economic Hitman, like, you know, look what we've done to South America. Right. Well, basically, I guess you could say the dollar is our weapon. So we would lend countries money. And by the way, this is what China is now doing with Africa. Yes. You would lend countries money and we lent all of South America. We didn't want South America to be dependent on any other uh, country like like the Soviet Union, for instance. So we lent South America a lot of money. They, of course, never were able to pay it back. So we essentially nationalized South America and and took over everything. And, and all of their resources belong to U.S. corporations, more or less. Not completely. I, I've oversimplified it, but you're right. So South America, in some sense, is a weird kind of uh, vassal of the, of the U.S. But... You know, what similarities do you see, you know, in terms of the decline of the Roman Empire with the U.S. right now? And I'm not saying the U.S. is declining. I don't yeah. really think it is. Um, but but no, those I, are I, similarities. I agree with you. I think you're right there. And I actually, so I was, um, I'm still really good to one of my uh, good friends and one of my uh, college professors is actually my thesis advisor. So I was talking about this yesterday. So I think there's actually two comparisons you could make. Because there's no real direct comparison, right? Because history is different. How the U.S. has operated, how Rome has operated is different, right? They're, they're, they're just, it's not a direct comparison. You could say that one part of it is we're very similar to how the Republic fell and the Empire rose. Like you could say that because things have been very tumultuous. There's been kind of more of a, a populist rising in ways where, you know, the, the right power vacuum could, could bring somebody and there could be control. But I actually think as well, um, we're very similar to, to Rome's crisis of the third century. And I, t- to me, I think that's the greater similarity of where we are. So the third century um, and how we got there is kind of a little funny. So you have Marcus Aurelius' son, Commodus, who's absolutely crazy. And he, he does a lot of strange stuff. So they get the, um, the guard actually ends up getting so mad, they end up killing him. So he reigns for, for, for a long period of time, but then they end up killing him. And you have a lot of upheaval for this period of time. There's another crazy emperor in there, which is Emperor Caracalla. It's, a, it's another like, hey, I'm a really good emperor. I'm going to name my kid emperor too, and which doesn't really seem to turn out well in history. So Caracalla is crazy in that time period. And then you have a lot of like emperors that really don't last long. Uh, the, the final of which is this guy named Elagabalus. And Elagabalus was nuts. He, he goes, so I'm in this worship cult where we all worship a rock. So my rock's going to get married to this other rock and you all have to watch it. We're all going to go to this wedding. And he would dress in women's dresses and do all these weird things. Like, Elagabalus was nuts. So eventually, you have kind of him leading to a series of of basically military emperors because the military realized, okay, things aren't really going so well. If I attack the city and name my general in charge, so you have um, what's called the year of 
five emperors. So there's basically five emperors in a year. There's a lot of upheaval. So we're going from like, this is, it, this starts around 200. This goes till 284. And we have Diocletian actually come in. And Diocletian comes in and he says, okay, things are not going so hot. We're going to do some reforms. So he actually comes in and he creates a standard coin, which is called the Soleus. It's the gold coin that's created. He creates a standard silver coin as well. I can't remember what the name of it is off top hand. So he really standardizes money. The other thing he does is he creates something called the Tetrarchy because he looks at it and he says, Rome is just way too big. It's too big. How do you manage this damn thing? So he creates a yeah, senior— was, uh, By the way, I was yeah. reading that the Rome at this time had around 140 million people yes, all together huge. across its east and west, across all of its, like, you know, whatever you call it, sub-countries. It's huge. It's, it's, you have Rome and then you have everything else is called, are called the Roman provinces. So he names a, a senior emperor in the West and a senior emperor in the, in, the, in the East. And they call the senior emperors Augustuses and they have, each has a junior emperor and they're called Caesars. So now there's basically four emperors. So that's the thing he tries to do to, to manage it because it's just too big. You can't manage it. And the other thing as well is um, under one of the other crazier emperors, Caracalla in 212, he, he does what's called the Edict of Caracalla. And he names everyone living in the province as a citizen. So now, like, citizenship doesn't have any real value anymore. So then um, Diocletian looks at that, too, and he actually does some military reforms to try and handle that because a lot of these guys had the benefits of citizenship, but you used to have to serve in what's called the Roman Auxiliary if you weren't Roman to get Roman citizenship. And after you served for, like, 20 years, you could be a Roman. What, what was so, the benefits of citizenship? Like, why was this a problem? Because, um, number one, you, you got more ability to have grain and things like that. You could actually vote. Um, you could actually control an area. You could get political power. But if you didn't have Roman citizenship, you couldn't do any of those things. And mm. to, to actually have, um, like, what would, what would end up happening is these guys would be in the Roman auxiliary. Auxiliary was, like, military, but just not for, for people that weren't Roman. They would serve for 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it is. Um, you know, over time that went up and by the, by the time the auxiliary was gone, you had to serve for 30 years. At the end of it, they would be, be named a Roman citizen and now they could go serve in government. And the thing that was nice about that is you could take that citizenship, you could be like, my son is a citizen now, his whole family is a citizen now. So there was a lot of value in that and you had to earn it. But after 212 and the, the Edict of Caracalla, so now Rome's supporting all these different people and all these different tribes and things like that, that, that didn't have to actually earn that citizenship. So it loses a lot of value. So Diocletian does all these reforms and it actually stabilizes the empire in 284. And that's actually the thing that makes it last till 476. And, and, but ultimately what happens? Like they how did their, did their army fall apart? Like they, they got, I mean, it's his, what we learn again in grade school, like what, yeah. what the average person knows, what <clears throat> I know is too many barbarian invasions. And finally they couldn't handle it anymore and they collapsed. Well, that's, it's that and also like weak rulers after that time period because um, there, there was a couple different ways that, that rulers were done. So in early Rome, you have Augustus was the first emperor. Then he names his adopted son who names his adopted son. So the, you have this kind of um, way that it's named through families. After Commodus, because he was so crazy, Commodus was Marcus Aurelius' son, you have military commanders that start being named emperor. And then, by the way, why did Marcus Aurelius, like, given how he was smart he was and how yeah. wise he was, and I do believe this was a wise person, and, you know, his daily, his meditations of Marcus Aurelius is uh, a must read, but why did he basically then name his son, who became like one of the worst emperors in history? 
Though he names him his co-emperor, so they actually served together as emperor for a bit. So I think he was hoping, like, you know, maybe Junior can shape up and do a good job. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think the thing you have to look at modernly, too, is, like, I'm sure you know people that, that have money and, and things like that that spoil their kids, right? Like, and it's just, you have mm. to, I think also making people earn something, you know, makes them kind of come up to the level they need to be to get it done. And Commodus is just a spoiled kid that becomes an adult. So he does all these weird things where he decides he wants to be a gladiator and he's going to kill animals in, in um, gladiatorial games. But he does them from um, a stand high above them because he doesn't want them to actually hurt him. Right. So he does a lot of this like crazy stuff. He starts killing people that threaten him. So to me, I just think that's what happens when a spoiled kid gets in charge. I think Marcus Aurelius should have made him earn that more and he, he didn't really do that. Now, did Marcus Aurelius, did he do anything bad or evil? No, he was actually the last of what's considered the the five good emperors um, because they they had all served for a long period of time, like 10 to 20 years or longer. And they created a lot of Roman stability, but he's the last of the five good emperors and then gives birth to Commodus, who's nuts. And so so Hadrian uh, or Diocletian splits apart the empire, right? Into, yes. Into, um, and then he actually West moves to the east. Why does he do that? Did he retire or did he become the emperor of the eastern side? So he becomes the emperor in the east um, in, a, in a place called Nicomedia. Um, where we haven't gotten to Constantinople yet. We don't get there till Constantine, which is, which is well after this. But he becomes the emperor in the east because once again, you know, they liked the east. Like there was more worship culture. There was more money. They were seen as more wealth. So he wanted to be in the east. That was just where it was where it seemed to be. And he actually retires. He doesn't, he, he, he's one of the few Roman emperors to, um, at that time period, not be killed or or not die. He actually retires and names his successor. So um, he he looks at it and he creates. I create some stability. Things are going pretty good. I think I'm going to retire now. And and he didn't, wasn't worried about being killed by the new emperor. I guess not. You know, he he ends up naming um, Constantine's father um, Constantius to actually be in charge, and then um, he later later leads to Constantine, who's the first guy to kind of bring Christianity as the Roman religion. And why do you think the Eastern part, the, the Byzantine Empire became called, why do you think that lasted another thousand years? I mean, that lasted basically until 1453 AD. I think you have Justinian to thank for that. He has a lot more structure. He's uh, the Justinian law code is what we still use today. So I think the fact that he put so much more of structure in it, and also, frankly, they didn't have as much threat from barbarians. You know, like, like mainland Europe was just getting hammered. I think was the East to get hammered as hard as the West got hammered, I think they would have had a harder time because if you look at it, um, once in 1453 when they get attacked by, um, oh gosh, what was the name of the empire that ended up taking them down? I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Do you remember? Uh, I'm, I'm looking here. Uh, oh gosh, I, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember off the top, off top hand. Um, G Germanic. Uh, no, I, no, in, in 1453, it's a Muslim empire. Um, oh gosh. Not the Ottoman Empire. It was the Ottoman Empire. There we go. Okay. So it's the Ottomans that end, up, that end up taking them down. Um, and, you know, by, by that point in time, the, like, you know, the, the money is gone, the wealth is gone, the city isn't really doing so well. And um, why wouldn't the barbarians go after them, given that every other, like, the barbarians were basically from, you know, all over Europe, but Eastern Europe as well. So why didn't they do what all the other, like what, like what Alexander the Great did, what, what the Romans did? Why didn't they go for the East? So there, there's different viewpoints on this. Um, there's kind of the traditional viewpoint of, of Edward Gibbon, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Empire in, in 1776. 
And um, he looks at it as, you know, basically the barbarians were kind of happy where they were and they didn't want to go further. Um, but there's a kind of a modern, more modern uh, historian that writes about this, and uh, his name's Dr. Brian Ward Perkins. And his, he has a different idea on it. So after Alaric sacks Rome in 410, the Romans actually pay tribute. So tribute is an amount of money that's paid to a group every single year. So because of that, um, the East never paid tribute to the barbarian tribes. The West paid tribute. So basically they're like, oh, well, we control these guys now. Um, so the last kind of 60 years of Rome, they're actually paying money to the barbarians every year to just stop attacking them. I see. So then the barbarians were just happy, like- They got hey, money. Get- Why do they care? Yeah. But you also, you also in the East too, you had the Mongols in that time period too. And the Mongols kind of just left, uh, left Byzantium alone. And they were kind of coming across the, the steps through Russia and, and attacking Europe. Yeah, why do they leave, again, since the, the Byzantine Empire was so wealthy, why do they leave it alone? Maybe, maybe because the Byzantine Empire had the one army that could potentially defeat them or ca- cause a challenge. They were actually one of the best established trading trading posts in that area. So I think I think trade through Byzantium was a big part of it. It, it created a lot of wealth for other parts of the world. So it kind of was, it was more valuable to them to have the trade there and have the ability to get these different things. So interesting. Like I really didn't know, I really didn't know ever, anything. So again, why do you think that it's become a meme? How how much do you think about the Ro- men think about the Roman Empire like seven hours a day? So there's. There, there's two different viewpoints on this. There's, there's, um, so my favorite Roman historian is a woman named uh, Dr. Mary Beard. She actually has a great series on Prime right now about, about Roman emperors, about the Roman Empire, if you get a chance to watch it. Oh, yeah. Um, but she, she has two diff- a, a viewpoint on it, and mine's a little bit different. But what she says is basically that Rome, they, people had this idea that men could be macho, which actually wasn't really 100% true um, because most Roman emperors weren't going and, and fighting battles and things like that. So, like, the way people look at history and the way it was are actually very different. Um, to me, I look at it as it's kind of more of a late stage empire thing. People look at it and like, well, things aren't really going so well right now. You know, remember, remember how great things were going in Rome? Imagine if we could be like Rome. So to me, I think it's more of people looking at, you know, is America a late stage empire? To me, I look at it, you know, once again, I think this is our crisis of the third century. I think with the right repairs, we got another couple hundred years and we can kind of keep doing this. But, you know, her viewpoint is like, you know, men feel like they're not macho. They're stuck in these corporate jobs. They're not really doing things that matter, um, which I, I think is also a big part of it as well. Oh, so you think, you think basically jobs, uh, like the modern economy has demasculated men? Yeah, because if you look at it, like, you know, it's, you're, you're going to go to school for a bunch of years and then you're going to go into a job where life doesn't really matter. And you want to kind of feel like, you know, you have an effect on things. And, you know, in, in, in Rome, you could have, you could even look at a lot of the the Roman emperors. Like there were people that were born, you know, not as slaves, but as very poor people that would end up being being emperor. And 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 that that had happened. That happened with with Emperor Hadrian. He was a guy that was born in the provinces. He was born to a poor family, and he ends up becoming emperor because he's put in the right political position. And I think people look at that and they're like, well, I don't really see how there's a path for me. I don't really see how there's a future for me. And it and it's you know. You, you wrote an article a few years ago about is, is New York City dead forever? And I think people look at the economy and they're like, you know, things aren't really going so great right now. Kids are getting out of school and they're paying for an education that that education didn't actually teach them how to do anything. So they have a mortgage without a house and you have the government telling you, hey, we're not in a recession. We just changed the definition of it. Things are going great. So it's, people are looking at it and they're like, I want opportunity. And I think that's really the biggest frustration for people right now. I see. So, so to some extent... The, the Roman Empire and Republic might have been more upwardly mobile than people are feeling right now. 
I, I think so. And it, because people, it, it, as much as we want to say there, there aren't kind of established classes here, I think it really has started to become the political class and everyone else. And that's, I don't care if you're on the right or the left, James, they're, they're both corrupt as hell and they both, yeah. you know, kind of do whatever serves them. And I think for the rest of us, we don't have as much mobility as we do. I think entrepreneurship gives us mobility. And I think that gives us the ability to do a lot. But I, I do think it's becoming increasingly closed off because of the political class. So, so if there's like one lesson from the decline of the Roman Empire that you would look at, what should, what should the U.S. be worried about as a society, as a culture? More solid monetary policy. I think that is the number one thing that's killing us um, is I know you've been big on talking about cryptos and things like that. And I, I think we need to take a look at our monetary policy because, you know, you can thank Richard Nixon for taking us off the gold standard and they're able to do, um, you know, uh, you know, fractional reserve banking and things like that now. So I think unless we handle our monetary policy, we are in a lot of trouble. And that was one of the biggest things that Diocletian handled is he's like, there's two standard Roman uh, pieces of money. We have a gold coin and a, and a silver coin, and this is the exact size they are and the exact weight they are and how they're traded. But I think the problem here is people don't have, if you look at the American dollar, it's not backed by gold. It's backed by the faith and credit of the American of the American economy. And I think people are losing the full faith and credit of the American economy. So I think unless we can solve that and unless we stop, you know, using our money as a weapon around the world, we're, we're hurting ourselves because you're looking at what's happening with BRICS and, you know, like we have countries that are starting to trade for oil and, and Chinese yuan and things like that. So I think unless we handle our monetary policy, man, we're in a lot of trouble. So interesting how, how basically that comes, that becomes the cornerstone of an empire slash country slash kingdom, whatever is the is the monetary policy. It's, it's it's more important than the military is how you how you treat your dollars versus how you treat your soldiers. Well, and we're doing it for the same reasons, which is interesting because you know one of the big things that that became the problem in the third century was they needed to pay for like basically Rome had started a, a grain dole, so they were feeding grain for everybody in the empire. Like, hey, you get free food if you live here. So you had that was happening. They were trying to fund the military and emperors, when they realized that they got their power from the military, well, they kept giving the military these giant raises every year, 30%, 60%, because if they kept the troops happy, they were happy. But in order to, to give more money, they needed more money. So they started devaluing dollars. And you look at it here, that's exactly what we were doing. You know, I, I got some car repairs recently and the hourly rate for those car repairs versus those same repairs I had on a different car in 2007 were triple for the hourly rate. So it's like your dollar is losing value so fast because we're just printing more of them. That's what, you know, people hear the idea of quantitative easing. They don't know what that means. That means that the Fed just fired up the printing press and made some more money. So we try to pay for things by just creating money. And it's like, you can't do that. Yeah. And I guess, I guess you could do that if the economy was growing faster than the amount of money. It's not. That's right. Like in, after 2020, between 2020 and now, 40% of all the money created in history was created in the US. Yeah. And the economy certainly didn't grow by 40%. It grows, you know, like one or 2% a year. But, you know, maybe now because it's still coming back from COVID, it'll grow a little faster because it was coming back from lows. But uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a very scary situation with $34 trillion in debt. I haven't really wrapped my head around it about what it means. Like our, the US's interest payments amount to about 4% of GDP a year. So if you say, oh, your mortgage and your debt payments on your credit cards and your house and so on is 4% of your income per year, that's not so bad. It doesn't seem so bad. So there's like different viewpoints about how bad our, our debt is. 
And when I was speaking to David Rubenstein, who's the head of the Carlyle Group and a really, you know, obviously a super smart investor, you know, he does think there's going to be a problem when, when all of us get older and Social Security can't pay for it all. Yeah. And that that's when he, he, as he put it on my podcast, he said he'll that he'll be dead by then, so he doesn't care as much. But it is it is going to be a problem, I think. Well, yeah. I think we're we're hurtling towards like a lot of entitlements we can't pay for. Now that doesn't mean that we need to get rid of them, but I need to think we do need to restructure how we're paying for them because we're we're just not doing things the right way, man. Things are out of control. Yeah, particularly if interest rates go up, if if other countries lose faith in the dollar. So that that's when because normally the U.S. can just roll over the debt, like they could borrow more money to pay back the old money, and yeah. uh, and because of inflation, they're borrowing cheaper dollars to pay back the more expensive loans that they took thirty years earlier. But if 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 other countries lose faith in the dollar, then interest rates will go up. Uh, you know, they'll basically charge a higher interest to lend to the U.S. And that's when things could get into that. That's when things can spiral into a problem. But I think that our banks also have to start behaving here too. Like if you watch it, like you know, a big part of what caused Silicon Valley Bank to fall is you know they have the the Fed window is kind of the last place they can go to get money when things aren't going so well, and they can borrow money from the Fed against tre Treasury bills. But the problem is those Treasury bills don't actually gain value. So then they try to sell those off to other banks to handle things, and it's just a shell game, man. And it, and it ends up being a bank collapses because there was no money in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the good thing about the weird thing about treasury bills is that they lose value during times of inflation, but you do get, if you hold for the long term, the U.S. government does, at least historically, pay back every dollar owed to those treasury bill holders. So that's why they're sort of treating the treasury, like from the purposes of keeping the bank alive, they're treating the Fed, the treasury bills as if they have the full value, even though if you tr try to sell them, they don't have the full value. So- the Federal Reserve is basically willing to scoop up all those treasury bills and hold them. But, you know, again, that just seems like a Band-Aid and it's unclear how that will work in the long run. Yeah. But Jeremy Ryan Slate, author of Unremarkable to Extraordinary, uh, thank you so much. You've basically, this is one of the most educational podcasts I've ever done. I learned a huge amount about, I have never given a, a, a any interest in in the Roman Empire at all? Maybe I should have to to learn more history. But I was fascinated after I did love the TV show Rome on HBO, which I know is not his one hundred percent historically accurate, but it's it's a little historically accurate. And there's great great actors in that in that show. And then you suggested we we talk about this, and I've learned a huge amount doing some reading before this podcast and then uh, you answering all my questions on it. So thank you so much for, for coming on. If you ever want to come on again and talk about something else, let me know. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate having me, James. I was really looking forward to this. I actually, I read a lot more this week too, just to make sure all of my knowledge gaps made sense. And I, I think we had a great conversation today, man. Excellent. Thank you. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. 
Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 